Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, how our cities retain heat in the warmest part of the year and what we're trying to do to mitigate that problem. Summer is on the way, and while that's good news in many places, here in the southwest it means heat so extreme that the warmest days can prove deadly. For those who grew up in Arizona, a common refrain is that it's getting hotter. Part of the reason for that may be what's known as the heat island effect. This phenomenon happens when humans remove natural materials that help dispel heat and replace them with man-made structures that retain that heat. To begin this episode, we spoke with Dr. Erin Ann Safel. She's Arizona's state climatologist who studies urban heat and hydrometeorology. I started by asking her about her position and how long Arizona has had an official climatologist. The state climatologist has been in this position for about 50 years in Arizona. And so I'm number six out of all of the state climatologists. What we tend to do, really write a lot of reports, go to a lot of meetings, but we serve the state in a variety of different ways. For example, like next week, I'll be talking with the interagency coordinating group. It's the advisory group that advises the levels of drought in Arizona to the governor. So things like that. So this week, we're really focusing on heat islands. It's something we all talk about uh, without PhDs and training and, and titles like state climatologist. But what is, so maybe we all have a common definition for this conversation, what is a heat island, an urban heat island? When we talk about the urban heat island, what we're really identifying is how the roads and the buildings kind of hold on to the sunlight during the day, it doesn't get excessively hotter than normal, but at night, what we're seeing, our temperatures are warmer. So it doesn't allow people to cool off as effectively. Buildings and roads, we know that they're hotter at night, and that's what's keeping our nighttime temperatures warmer. Some cities like Los Angeles and now even Phoenix have appointed heat officers what does a heat officer do? And I have a feeling it may be tied a little bit to that urban heat island. Really grateful to see how we have an appearance of these heat offices and officers in our country, helping to keep those vulnerable populations a little bit safer, helping everyone understand how heat operates in these cities in the Southwest, where heat is a little bit more dangerous than other places. Do you expect more places like Tucson, Yuma, probably not Flagstaff, unfortunately, or fortunately for them, to end up with heat offices at some point? I'm not sure how that works. I'm happy to educate and, and go to those cities if they don't have heat offices, um, because this is kind of what the state climatologist also does, kind of explain these ideas and help keep people safe. Going back to that heat island effect, I know people here in southern Arizona always talk about it in relationship to Phoenix, but is it really a problem for big cities like Phoenix or the metro Phoenix area, or can smaller municipalities, smaller metro areas have those similar problems? Every location that has those buildings and roads that we install to make our lives easier 
they all have an urban heat island. It may not just be as big as what we experience in Phoenix. And for that reason, my office is actually going to be starting this summer to measure some of those smaller cities and towns like Yuma, Benson, and we're going to try and see if we can quantify what's going on in those cities so we know where the hotter places are in those cities. Now, when you say Benson, that may surprise people. Benson is not a big metropolis, but you're looking at Benson. Why Benson? We want to identify eventually all of the urban heat islands in the state. We want to make a map that shows where those urban heat islands in Arizona really manifest and what they look like for those locations. And I think that's really important to understand because there's a lot of folks that are living in these places that are a little bit more vulnerable to these heat conditions. We have to crank up our air conditioner at night. And so understanding what's going on around you, I think, is really helpful. And of course, Yuma, we know it just gets hotter in general. Um, do you expect to see, as Yuma is growing, as, as the rest of the state is, some heat island effect there? Or is there still enough agricultural land, you think, around there that maybe they don't have as much heat island? That's a great question to ask, because really, when we're looking at the urban heat island, it's a difference between what's going on in the city and what's going on in the rural areas around. So when we have those agricultural areas with water that allows evaporation and cooling conditions, it's really going to kind of show a big difference between what's going on in, in Yuma and what's going on in the periphery. When it comes to heat islands, is there anything that can be done to combat them, uh, be it for a Phoenix, a Tucson, maybe a Yuma, or even a Benson? There's really interesting research that's being done to mitigate some of that holding on that heat in our roadways. Um, and you can kind of do that with your buildings as well. So planting trees is helpful because that's shade and it prevent some of that sunlight from coming in and being held in your building. And there's really interesting techniques that are being developed and tried out in the Phoenix area. So those roadways don't hold on to as much sunlight during the day. Lots of really interesting things that are happening. When you talk about trees and the urban heat island effect, is it just trees which provide, obviously, as you mentioned, shade, but can other plants, lower plants that might be found out in more desert areas like Yuma help with the heat island? Well, one of the aspects of kind of mitigating the urban heat island is preventing that sunlight from adding to the load in your building, so making your building hotter. So trees tend to do that. But in Tempe, we have these historical neighborhoods that use a lot of flood irrigation. And I lived in one of those. And that flood irrigation allows evaporation, which is a cooling effect. And I ended up being about 10 degrees cooler than what was going on at Phoenix Sky Harbor. Yeah, you mentioned something interesting there. 10 degrees cooler in Tempe than at the airport in Phoenix, Sky Harbor. So within an urban heat island, we'll use Phoenix because that's the one everybody always talks about and the one that's been studied so much. It sounds like there can be heat islands within the heat island, if you will, or maybe cool pockets. We call these microclimates when you have these zoomed in, what's going on in your backyard, what's going on in your neighborhood. And you can absolutely take some attempts to mitigate and affect what's going on with those hotter temperatures in the city and have it not impact you as much. 
you talk about mitigating heat islands. Is it possible to reverse them or once they get going, that's it? You do what you can to keep them from growing, if you will, temperature wise, but you can't stop it once it starts. Yeah, it's more along the lines of proper planning and keeping that sunlight from being stored in the roads and in the buildings. And so as we're moving forward and building new buildings and roads, taking that into account. Heat islands, it sounds like they're a a relatively new phenomenon as we've started paving roads and building buildings. Is it correct to equate them at all with climate change, or are the two things separate? When we look at climate change, really the definition of climate change is a change in our temperatures or a change in how energy is used. And when we're looking at an urban structure, it changes how energy is being used, how it's being stored. So it's stored in the ground, it's stored in the pavement, and then it's released slowly at night. And that's a completely different energy supply and energy source than what we would have in a normal desert environment or a natural environment. And so absolutely, we we can look at these kinds of things and understand that they're a form of changes in our climate system. And the urban heat islands have actually been studied for about 200 years, identified then. Um, But really in the 70s, we started recognizing how this plays a role with what's going on with our urban structures. I don't know how much of a historian you are, but 200 years of urban heat islands, that surprises me. It may surprise some other folks. Well, you can see that, yeah, the population changes really are that key aspect of understanding how urban heat islands expand. So I'm born and raised here in Arizona, and I grew up in Mesa and Scottsdale. And so you can kind of see how that population change has increased, and that causes the urban heat island magnitude to increase as well. We're talking about urban heat islands as they relate to Arizona. We're an Arizona-based show, but do we see heat islands in other places around the country, around the world, or because we have, thankfully, 300 days a year of sun, give or take, do we see the effect more here? When you're understanding what happens to make that urban heat island a little bit bigger, it really plays into that sunlight, like you just said, and also really dry conditions. So when we hit June here, which is the hottest and driest month in Arizona, that allows all of that sunlight to come in. There aren't as many clouds to block that sunlight coming in. It's not as windy. And so all of that really happens in June where we see that large magnitude. So when you have cities that are a little bit more north and they're less sunlight coming in, that does play a role. And then flipping that on the other side, when you're looking at winter conditions and locations that are in the northern tier that would kind of benefit from it being a little bit warmer (laughs) during the winter, there's that aspect as well. All right. Well, thanks for spending some time with us. I'm very happy to do so. Nice speaking with you. That was state climatologist Dr. Aaron Ann Saifel. As Dr. Saifel said, increasing the amount of plants in our environment, particularly trees, can help reduce urban heat islands. One group that's taken that lesson to heart is Tucson Clean and Beautiful. It's working with a variety of partners, including the city of Tucson, for its Trees for Tucson project. The group aims to plant a million native trees in our area, particularly in neighborhoods that lack large flora. I spoke with two people taking part in that effort, Tucson Clean and Beautiful project manager, 
Becca Johnstone, and Trees for Tucson co-manager Pedro Perez. Our conversation started with Johnstone telling us why it's important to get so many trees in the ground. Because Tucson is growing so much, we're adding all the asphalt and the concrete in all of our buildings. The heat just reflects off of that and creates a hotter environment than the desert is next to us. So when we add trees, we're cooling that environment by shading the ground and the buildings around us. But also for an equity reason, a lot of our low income areas also have low canopy. By adding more trees in those areas, we're able to decrease their electricity bills, um, increase happiness because trees and you know nature in general, it makes your mood better. When we talk about that urban heat island effect and trees, you mentioned shade. Is that really the only effect or do we get into reduction of carbon dioxide or something else we're not thinking of, because I'm not a scientist, uh, that also trees help with the urban heat island? Yeah, they, they absorb pollutants and carbon emissions uh, through carbon sequestration. The trees take that in and convert it into wood. That improves the health of the community that these trees are in. When we talk about trees, as we've said, we keep talking about shade. So somebody's going to say, that's it. I'm getting the biggest, leafiest tree I can to give me the most shade. Is that the right tactic here? Well, it really depends on their water needs. I feel like a lot of times, especially on the residential scale, it's best to go with trees that are adapted to our desert. And so they're not gonna need as much water to, to still provide that shade. Since it is getting hot and people are now really paying attention to these issues, is this the best time to be planting trees or should we do it at a different time and we're just gonna have to suffer through this summer and get ready for the next heat? You definitely wanna wait to plant and not plant right now. We recommend planting from October until March, like the end of March, because that's going to be our coolest time, especially like in October in the fall time. That gives your trees time to establish before they have to endure that first really hot summer. And not to mention, it's hard work. Digging holes uh, big enough for trees is a lot of work, so it's, it's tough on us, too. <laughs> right, you have to do it in the hot sun if you do it right now. <laughs> so how does Trees for Tucson work? You know, who can apply for help with trees and things like that? So we have two uh, shade programs. We have the residential program where customers can purchase trees from us directly and we deliver them uh, within the Tucson area. And then we have our neighborhood scale tree planting program that involves a little bit more organizing with uh neighborhood associations, uh, our city ward offices, uh, key partners within these communities, and it starts with our planning phase. And then after that planning phase, we go into this outreach phase, connecting with neighbors, really rallying the neighborhood and organizing, making those connections to get everyone on board to take on trees. And we provide three free trees for these neighborhoods that are uh, participating in this program. And then from there, the actual um, logistics side of it, getting the trees, delivering them, all that for the main event where we get all of our groups, our volunteers, neighbors, community partners, and staff to just come out. We were talking about using native trees, which makes sense, especially in a desert where we're a little prone to droughts. 
But if people hear this and they look in their yard and say, well, I have all these mature fruit trees or something else that came with the house, should they be tearing them out and trying to replace them with other trees or just enjoy the uh, citrus in the spring and try and do some rainwater harvesting? I am of the opinion that there is no bad tree. Now, can there be invasive and problematic trees? Of course. (laughs) But I I generally try not to advocate for the removal of especially mature veteran trees that um, provide so many benefits beyond just the, uh, the labels we attach to them. You know, if you have a mature fruit tree in your yard and it's using a lot of water, well, think about it. You know, that water could be going to a lawn, which would be a complete waste in our environment. But in that case, you're getting food, you're getting shade, you're providing food and habitat for wildlife. And just the benefits alone can outweigh the perceived um, negatives. But that's not to say that we can't do better the next time we want to plant something. If we locate an area, maybe the citrus tree is on the decline and there's no saving it. Maybe plan for the next one, a desert ironwood there, a blue palo verde if you want food, one of our native lagoon trees, and um, you will still maintain that shade benefit. That was Becca Johnstone and Pedro Perez of Tucson Clean and Beautiful and Trees for Tucson. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. We're looking at the urban heat island effect this week. Earlier this year, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, better known as NOAA, announced a program aimed at helping researchers better understand what makes cities retain heat and what allows it to dissipate. Among the 18 cities taking part in a one-day survey that will require thousands of measurements is Sedona, Arizona. Sedona is notably smaller than the major metropolises where studies on the heat island effect are commonly done, with around 10,000 full-time residents and taking up about 18 square miles. Sedona's sustainability coordinator, Zach Schwartz, is overseeing the effort locally. He spoke with the Buzz producer, Zach Ziegler. This city isn't too terribly urban by most people's standards, you know. Not a lot of tall buildings, plenty of open space, and relatively small in size and population. What do you think can be learned through this study about how the urban heat island effects hit Sedona? We don't really know uh, how bad Sedona's urban heat island effect is. I mean, this is basically just a baseline for us to figure out, is it a really severe urban heat island effect or is it not? We have a lot of good reason to be doing it, even though we might not be as hot or built up as say Phoenix. Extreme heat can impact a lot of different groups of people um, from young people like infants, but more specifically and more pertinent to Sedona, uh, more elderly people. There's a socioeconomic aspect to this as well in terms of extreme heat. If you can't afford to keep your AC on or you live in a lower income community where maybe there aren't as many trees or bushes or vegetation in general, you will be experiencing higher levels of heat than other parts of the city that may have more trees and more vegetation. So what is the city and its residents, what are you going to be asked to do as part of this study? It's kind of just a lot of planning up front, but the actual day of data collection is that it's just a day. The way this works is basically you 
have a number of predetermined routes within your area of study. So we're going to have between six and seven routes. We have volunteers from our community that are signing up now. We already have 21 residents participating. But so these residents will be paired up and they will drive or bike these routes in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening to get a full spectrum of how heat is impacting the city of Sedona over a 12-hour period. NOAA has hired an organization called Kappa LLC, um, and this is basically all they do. They've worked with 70 other cities around the country and a few abroad. For each route, they're going to send us a pair of equipment, and that equipment is going to collect data on heat, humidity, and GPS location. This equipment is going to be linked up together, and they're going to take one-second snapshots every second as you're driving these routes. And from that, we can build a model of how uh, heat is dispersed at ground level throughout the city. Have you been thinking about what you might see once you get these results and what might come from that? Yeah. Um, I know it's kind of hard to ask a question about, <laughs> hey, you know, you don't know it's the data happen. yet. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have the results yet, but what do you think you're going to do? <laughs> right. I mean, the scientific process, you have your hypothesis, but you follow the data. And so we're just going to be seeing what it, what it shows us. We have no idea. We might not have really any type of urban heat island effect, but pattern holes, um, any area that doesn't have a lot of vegetation and more asphalt, especially like black asphalt and darker colored construction materials and things like that, it's going to be hotter. It might not be as much as 20 or 30 degrees, which can be seen, you know, in more larger urban centers, but... I would be surprised if we don't see anything standing in a black colored parking lot. Like that is just going to be hotter than standing under a bunch of trees. It just is. So from that, assuming we do have an urban heat island effect, it'll help inform a lot of different things from building shade structures around the city to uh, building shade structures uh, near our bus stops and public transportation that we're also currently building. And it would also inform, hopefully, uh, future city codes. You know, zoning and codes are not my uh, department, but other cities have used their urban heat island to inform future codes. So Sedona is world-renowned for kind of the natural beauty, the red rocks, the natural desert vegetation that's in the area. And it really seems to be something that has been taken into consideration with building and growth in this area. Are there areas, though, where you think you're going to see results where, you know, the shopping complexes along 89A, as you mentioned, where there's plenty of blacktop? Right. Our residents, you know, engaged with our, our civil process, our democratic process, and they got zoning codes passed a long time ago. Um to protect a lot of the natural environment around here. But not only that, we're completely surrounded by national forests. You know, just looking at patterns of how the urban heat island effect even occurs, like I said, vegetation tends to really help reflect sunlight back into the atmosphere and absorb heat. So, yeah, along those patterns, I would expect the areas of the city that are national forest or just heavily vegetated and protected areas, those are going to be cooler than, say, the shopping centers. Speaking of those more naturally vegetated areas, I I think of a spot like 
Oak Creek as it travels through, you know, plenty of green, lush trees in the and area. And by a creek. Yeah, yeah, and by a waterway. That's, a, that's another, yeah, so that's another natural mechanism that keeps areas cooler. You can, you can test this out yourself, like stand in a parking lot and then drive to a nearby creek, and I promise it'll probably be significantly cooler. These natural landscapes, they are really good at keeping uh, the, the ground and the, uh, the ground surface temperature at a stable climate. And this is another reason why I think this is a really good thing to do. What are some of the city's other efforts around issues, be it heat or just uh, the warming climate in general? Yeah, well, I will also say that combating and uh, dealing with the urban heat island effect is a action item directly listed within our climate action plan. We are um, a newer program, um, about three years old, I think going on four years. The much more developed, the older uh, sustainability program or department is, the more you have specialists. But we're newer, so we kind of have to be generalists. We have a lot of work to do covering a lot of different topics. Sustainability is a big topic. We have different programs that cover things from greenhouse gas accounting to solar co-ops to home energy retrofit programs, composting, increasing the uh, city's walkability or bikeability. I should say more specifically, bikeability. We don't build the roads or the streets. Uh, My department does not. Uh, We do greenhouse gas accounting for the city, our municipal operations. Yeah, and we could go on and on, but we have a lot of projects that we that we cover and take care of. Quite a bit, especially considering this is a relatively small city. Yeah. 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 Um, we're really fortunate and lucky to have um, a community that takes climate action, resiliency, sustainability uh, pretty seriously. Climate change and sustainability isn't necessarily Sedona's uh, biggest front burner issue, though. Uh, We were down here close to a year ago about the housing shortage here. Mm -hmm. Building more homes while staying environmentally friendly can be a tricky road to hoe. Mm. What are your thoughts on tackling housing issues while remaining as sustainable as possible? I don't want to touch too much on that just because uh, we do have a housing coordinator and director, um, and that is her bread and butter. I will say affordable housing is in many ways a sustainable issue. It is a, in a way a climate change issue as well because we have uh, quite a large workforce that comes in that has to drive in from sometimes pretty far distances because they're not able to find housing in, in Sedona or anywhere close by. That leads to quite a lot of emissions just in terms of getting our workforce here and home. I do know that you know we we are we do strive for like uh, affordable housing to be built within the city, but we do have these discussions with the housing manager. Is like, well, how do we build these buildings in an affordable way, but also trying to implement some sustainable designs that sometimes are you know they're not the cheapest option. Well, you did make a very interesting point in there, though, that if you don't have economically affordable housing nearby, people are having to do a lot of driving, burning a lot of fossil fuels yeah. to get to their jobs here while living in, you know, Cottonwood or Camp Verde. Yeah, and we we have someone on staff uh, in our program um, and in a few other departments where they 
uh, they can drive up to an hour, maybe more. Um, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we can strive to provide more affordable housing for the city, that's a lot of driving throughout the year. Providing affordable housing is a sustainability and climate change issue. Well, Zach, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, uh, thank you again for having me. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Great to uh, talk to you and uh, inform your listeners about a little bit more about Urban Heat Island Effect. That was Zach Schwartz, Sustainability Coordinator for the City of Sedona, being interviewed by the Buzz producer, Zach Ziegler. And that's the Buzz for this week. Tune in next week as we preview AZPM News' latest podcast, More Than a Game, which takes a look at the intersection of sports and our lives. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Zach Ziegler is our producer with production help from Phil Howard and Samantha Larnett, who both wrap up their time as AZPM student employees this week. Phil has been behind the scenes fact-checking and doing research for us this year. Samantha is not only a familiar name to listeners, but also a familiar voice as our assistant and sometimes lead producer and a reporter for The Buzz over the last two years. Congratulations on your graduation to both of you. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.